What do you do when you're caught between two worlds that you hold dear? Two worlds that are sometimes fearful and sometimes disdainful of each other. Artists with religious beliefs often find themselves in this quandary. Hello there, friends. I'm Owen Murphy, and I want to welcome you to a really, 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 really interesting episode of Weasel Radio. We'll call it That One with Michelle Shocked. For those of you who don't know, Michelle is a singer and songwriter who is very politically and socially active. She's also a Christian, and like Ben, was publicly shamed after comments she made during a show in 2013 that were, of course, and this always happens, misinterpreted. If you've never heard Michelle's music, sometimes she sounds like this. When I grow up, I want to be an old woman. When I grow up, I want to be an old woman. Oh, and oh, no, 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 an old, old woman. Other times like this. Even like this. That diversity in musical style and her global perspective make her one of the most fascinating people we've ever had on Weasel Radio. This conversation is often tangential, which to my way of thinking makes it absolutely, utterly, incredibly fascinating. As always, I'm just outside Seattle, Ben's in Madison, and Michelle Schock joined us via Skype from her home in Los Angeles. I mentioned Skype because there's a few audio hiccups, just a few, so roll with them and I think you'll enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Now, here's Michelle, Ben, and myself. I'm interested in the um, the witchification of Michelle Schacht and and how that relates, because I think it does, although I might think it in a different way than Michelle thinks, but I think it relates to the issue of artistic freedom and artist rights and what is happening now on the internet, not just with this puritanical witch hunt mentality, but but also with uh, how how artists are, are being systematically, I think, um, stripped of the things that are most important, not just money, but are are most important to enable them to continue to make good art. <laughs> and, uh, I think Michelle has strong thoughts about that. So we can start wherever you want, Michelle. I think that, um, our listeners probably, if they don't know the story, I don't know. It was I mean, about two and a half years ago. Some things that Michelle said on stage were were taken out of context. Very obviously, even if you didn't know the context, it was suspicious that it that it would have been what it was reported being. Um, but supposedly, Michelle Schacht was a homophobe and had made these homophobic comments on stage. This is sincerely the two things that I'm passionate about, y'all. I love me some Jesus, and I love liberation. And I did not know how I was going to come to San Francisco and 
authentically represent both. I was in a prayer meeting yesterday, and you got to appreciate how scared, how scared folks on that side of the equation are. I mean, from their vantage point, and I really shouldn't say there, because it's mine too, um, we are at nearly at the end of time. And from our vantage point, once Prop 8 gets uh, instated, and once um, preachers are held at gunpoint and forced to marry the homosexuals, I'm pretty sure that that will be the signal for Jesus to come on back. You said you wanted reality. <laughs> if someone would be so gracious as to please tweet out, Michelle Shock just said from stage, God hates faggots. <laughs> would you do it now? So began the witch hunt, and there was an appearance uh, on the Piers Morgan show when he still had a show. This is Piers Morgan Live. Have you become homophobic? Over, I'd say, the last 10, 12 years, I've enjoyed such a degree of independence and, and freedom. I can basically do whatever I want. I don't have minders or managers telling me what to do. And I've adopted a course that's not the orthodox one where I say that there's only two things you don't discuss in polite company. One is politics and the other is religion. Mm -hmm. And I make a point of talking about both. And the clip that we just listened to, it sounds quite serious-minded, but it was at the start, as I said, of the encore. And... Um, but you lost the audience. I mean, I, that's why I said I listened Not to the then, whole thing. Not then, but later on, yeah. I and mean, most of them began to walk out and were very unhappy about it and wanted their money back and so on. But I repeat the question, really. I mean, are you basically, when you said what you said, it sounds, on the face of it, to be pretty obvious and clear homophobia. Are you homophobic? Yeah, on the, on the, um, on the surface, it sounds really bad. Um, it's not really a point worth making, but the show is supposed to be live, not recorded. And well, the what difference would that make? To me, it's an important difference, but I don't think we have time to go into it right now. When you read it in the transcript, which I've gone back and created, mm. um, I can do a couple of things to show you and highlight. Well, well, look, let's try and keep this simple for the audience, because right. you, you were born a Mormon, you converted to, uh, to become a born-again Christian, and many Christians have views about gays and about gay marriage and other issues. Are you somebody that, that objects to a gay lifestyle and to gay marriage? If the question is asked to make things simple for the audience, and I believe you that it is, I'd like to make it even simpler. I am, for the last 10 years, so deeply in love with a man that the idea of living my life without him is impossible. Right. I know how much I love him, and knowing that passion that I have for him, would I ever want to deny that to anyone else? Absolutely not. So you're not homophobic? If you want to keep this simple for the audience, let me just give you a straight... No, I'm not homophobic. There were sh uh, shows canceled. Um, you know, it really seemed, as far as I can tell, it really, you know, affected your career, Michelle. And, uh, and maybe does to this day. I don't know. Um, the, the word career is kind of the, the sticking point. Um, my career has been based on writing amazing songs and learning how to sing them adequately. Um, anything beyond that in terms of audience reach, demographic, um, I've been almost anti-career. I, I knew that these major label guys weren't 
my friends, but I didn't quite get the memo on why. I didn't really know. And Nirvana kind of captures it with uh, Nevermind when they're dangling the money in front of the kid. So I turned down the advance and I, I told them that I wanted to own uh, my master's. And uh, so that was kind of how my quote unquote career was launched with me knowing that sooner or later there would come push to shove and I was going to either have to shove back or get run over. Well, it did. In, in um, 93, the label decided that they wouldn't let me um, release a new album, but they also wouldn't let me uh, leave the label. They basically put me on ice. And in around 96, it was explained to me more clearly, you know, this label's never going to promote you properly because you cut too good a deal for yourself. So that's why I put the quote marks around the word career, is that when someone has the ability to artificially manipulate your access to an audience, um, irrespective of the content that you're creating, it, it tells you pretty pretty clearly that this game is, is, is rigged. So I, I knew that when I set up what I call my honey dick, my, my little Rube Goldberg thing in San Francisco. Um, and for lack of a better word, you know, you can call it witchification and it sounds like from what you've experienced that you may have good reason to, um, look at it from that perspective but I I literally conceived of my exploit as not a prank um, and I didn't even really think of it as a provocation although I, I believe that there's a, a time-honored tradition of satirists to provoke and stimulate um, uh, conversation, if not outright thinking with their audiences. But I, I literally conceived of it as a rope-a-dope. And pow, <laughs> it, uh, it worked better than I could have expected. So are you saying then that you expected uh, uh, some sort of backlash, maybe not as big as it, as it uh, ended up being, but that you were expecting a, a backlash? Yeah, because it had already started. Um, the previous year, um, I had gone out and I noticed something was different because um, I was doing a song, I've done it for years, about a young black graffiti artist named Michael Stewart who was arrested um, while writing graffiti on a subway in New York. And... Um, while under arrest, he was put in a chokehold and, and strangled to death. I mean, I've been doing this song for years. People even try to point to this song as evidence that I'm a, a protest singer. And I'm like, that's not a protest song. That's a blues. But um, I, would, I would take that song, and in the middle of it, I would shift the conversation to, um, at the time, was Bradley Manning. And I would ask the audience why Obama had uh, promised to protect whistleblowers. But here's Manning being uh, persecuted. And at the time, he was in indefinite detention. You know, they hadn't 
uh, brought the charges, solitary confinement. And I'd heard a song by uh, Graham Nash called Almost Gone, talking about the condition that Manning in solitary confinement was in. It was pretty bad. And when I asked the audience this question, Ben, they started to walk out. Yeah, well. <laughs> but no, no, wait, wait. This makes no sense. I mean, this is an audience that has been carefully curated and groomed for years. Because not only, you know, do I serve my opinions any chance I get, but my opinions are pretty well known on this stuff. So why is, why is my audience walking out during my comments? So I noticed that what had really what had really shifted was that after I'd been arrested the year before um, at Occupy Wall Street, you know, we had an encampment here right. in L.A. And um, so I had to start making sense about why people would be walking out of my gigs for something that, you know, I think that they would share that that point of view on. And the, the conclusion that I came to was that um, people were coming to my shows not as fans, but as antagonists, that this was the new entertainment. So well, maybe that's been that way in punk rock for a long time, actually. You look back at, I mean, well, so, yeah, certain segments spit on by idiots and. In England Certain in 77, segments. you know. So you don't, you don't think then, because my guess would have been, if you'd asked me, I would have said, um, well, of course people are doing that when they wouldn't have done that, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because, um, because our culture, you know, thanks to the internet, which there's a lot of good things about the internet, but thanks to the internet, our culture has become more and more um, we've become more and more uh, entrenched and territorial in in our political views so that if you go so that it's the point now as opposed to in the 90s if you criti- if you were on the left and you criticized Clinton that was kind of par for the course whereas if there's a much larger group it seems to me that if you criticize Obama you're kind of um, giving ammunition to the other side or not supporting the cause or whatever or that traitors. would be my take from it anyway but you know, why, why would people come to your, I understand why people do it with me because I'm antagonistic, but why would people come to your shows to, to antagonize you to, to essentially cause trouble? Well, um, don't forget that a woman is sort of like driving while black, Mm. um, having an opinion while female is, is kind of socially dangerous. But what changed? I mean, you did, you've done the, as you said, you've done this for years. You've done it from the, the beginning of your career. So what changed? Did something change in the culture? Did something change in your audience? What happened that, that caused this, um, that caused this kind of disconnect between you and certain members of the audience, or maybe there was never a connection between those people, but why did they start showing up? Well, I think I know the answer. I think I do. But before I put it out there, um, I have to believe that you've given a great deal of thought to the question yourself. And I've, you know, I've done a lot of research, and it was great to see you in person because that really tells me a lot more about an artist than 
uh, an album or a website ever will. Sure. So what 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 answer have you come up with personally in your case? What what happened? What changed? For 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 me, um, nothing except that that it became more and more. Um, well, I shouldn't say nothing, uh, but I mean I've dealt I've dealt with that from from day one, and and it's. I think it is more widespread now because I think there's, there is ironically enough, we used to hear about how there was a gulf between, you know, major labels were evil. So there was this gulf between the major label band and their fans that theoretically did not exist between the, the independent band and their fan fan. And that was largely artificial, but, um, but it was kind of a, a, uh, uh, an article of faith. And what happened, ironically, is that the internet, which was going to set us all free from the shackles of the of the major labels and the big record companies and everything, um, created a situation where uh, that gulf grew much wider. And and I think that has something to do with it. When I see people who are, you know, throwing things at me or this or that or the other thing, what I see is, I imagine what an animal in a zoo sees. <laughs> When they're looking out, I, I, I see people who do not look at you and think this is a person, you know, you're, you're, and, and that I think wasn't maybe as common 10, 20 years ago as it is now. And, and since it seems to coincide with the internet, I'm blaming the internet. Let's just blame the internet for everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but but haven't things like smartphones and social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, change things as well because a person can be sitting there yes. filming uh, and because they are filming, then they are suddenly the artist during a show in this case. Uh, and so that puts them in the performance and uh, maybe shifts things and causes them to then do things they wouldn't normally do because they are a performer. So to, I, don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if I would go that far, but I think you're onto something in the sense that I think they're all, all those things are connected. I mean, the the the... The, you're certainly right, I think, in the sense that the experience of going to a show for a certain segment of the crowd is not what it used to be. It's been, it's been replaced by this, um, this obsessive need to document. And so instead of just experiencing the thing, you're, you're documenting. You're like, you will see people literally at gigs holding their phone up, filming. And, you know, the video is always terrible. The sound is always just unlistenable. But they will... <laughs> spend 20 or $25 to stand there with her phone the whole gig and record the thing. And I, I, I just can't, I don't understand what pleasure they're getting out of that or how, how they can go home and feel like, yeah, that was money well spent. That was a, that was a great evening. I really, I really like, I really like your characterization of what uh, an animal in a zoo uh, <laughs> must, must feel like on stage now. And uh, we're using kind of the catch-all phrase of the internet, but while we're talking, I'm trying to kind of keep up with live tweeting as well. And I'm going to send a <laughs> a tweet. I'm going to send a tweet now that puts a much narrower focus or a tighter frame on the subject at hand. And the tweet I just sent, I got from WikiLeaks. Take it with a grain of salt, if you if you must. But the article is published in Politico, and it's called How Google Could Rig the 2016 Election. And so I'm looking at it now. So what we're what we're kind of groping at and calling the Internet, 
I had a hunch about because long before I helped to occupy the front lawn of uh, L.A. City Hall, I was called to Madison hmm, yes. to help rally and support um, uh, folks who were um, he was rallying behind the the 14. And so figure Madison was before the Arab Spring. Madison really was the first uh, little glimmer of this of this thing. And in the aftermath of it, my analysis, and I'd be really curious to hear yours, was not that these 14 um, elected representatives, uh, senators, state senators, um, just out of the blue decided to walk out. I personally feel that this was a fight that had been picked not by um, the Democrats, but in fact by the stealth party, the party that shall not be named, the party that owns um, Scott Walker's left nut and right nut. And um, there was a great prank that was, there was a great prank that was pulled where um, I think it was Charles Koch had been called and, or pretend. No, somebody pretended to be, yeah, somebody somebody pretended to be one of the Koch brothers and called Walker, and he spoke to them. He spoke to this imposter as though it as though it was one of the Koch brothers, like an old friend. Right. So, so that's my that's my analysis is that they want, they picked this fight with the public service unions because they knew that the unions were weak and they knew that they were going to win. So they it was like a test run. They were choosing. They were picking their battles. And so then, of course, comes Occupy Wall Street, rah, rah, rah. Well, they're data mining. They're gathering all of the partisanship that they can to know which way the wind blows. And I think that this is the this is kind of the end game. I call it the stealth party uh, because, you know, in 84, we were protesting both the Democrats and the Republicans because it didn't matter who right. got put in the White House, those corporations who had contributed to both campaigns were going to be the one calling the shots. So the way that they do this, what we're calling the Internet in this conversation, is that um, analytics need to eliminate edge cases. They need to eliminate um, all of the, and I'm going to kind of use my Skype screen here, they need to, they need to, eliminate everyone from the conversation that doesn't fall within a very, very narrow middle demographic, because that's how they're going to do this. In this Wikipedia link uh, in the Politico article, what it explains is that it's it's a what I always called the swing vote, um, that Google has the power right now to flip upwards of 25 percent of the national elections worldwide, and that in the U.S., um, presidential elections have been won by margins of less than uh, 8%. And now, are, are you talking about, I'm sorry to interrupt, are you talking about the idea, because I haven't read the article, you're talking about the idea that, um, that are you talking about mainly the search engine? In other words, what people see based on, um, based on what they've shown their, their preferences in the past to be? Is that, is that 
what that's touching on? Close, but um, not quite smoking the cigar here, Ben. Um, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like as musicians, when we rant, like I do frequently about bootlegging and piracy, people think that what we're saying is that we're against file sharing because somehow it's taking money out of our pockets. But what we're really trying to help people understand is that this is this is a business model and that what they're really doing is data mining and why they're data mining is for targeted marketing because in the past the best an advertiser could hope for was you just fling it out there and if it's splatted against the wall wherever it's stuck we must have hit our target but now um, analytics promises advertisers hey give us your advertising dollar and we're going to target market we are going to hit your audience and you know this with sports you know this with music if you know what kind of 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 team someone follows if you know what kind of band someone follows you know an awful lot about that person as a desirable advertising demographic sure that's- and there's no question that that's been going on uh for for years and back before the internet we had the we had uh, you know, direct mail and we had uh, much more f- uh, phone solicitation and stuff. So this is kind of an advanced, uh, an advanced technologically advanced version of that. But look, ultimately, the, the, everything that's done has to be done by people. And this is where I get a little leery or wary, I guess, is the word of, um, of too much talk about corporations. Because the more... If you use the word corporation over and over, you tend to forget that you're talking about actual individuals have to um, have to take part in things and have to do things. So, for instance, if if you know, it's important obviously to look at who is who is investing in Spotify, for instance, if Google is, which I think they are. They are. And <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just going by memory, but that's important. That matters, and that has, I think, uh, a uh, um, that ought to be taken into consideration when people are evaluating, hey, what's going on and, and whose interest is this serving? But at the same time, um, there are individuals, you know, the people who are actually doing the work are individuals who are getting paid their salary, you know, working at their cubicle job or whatever. And what is, what's, you know, what's in it for them and what is their view of it and how do they feel about it? Because I think a lot of people just don't, simply don't understand, for instance, or don't, can't relate to the idea of what it's like to be a a film actor or what it's like to be an, a professional athlete or to be a working musician. And, um, and they sort of think, well, uh, you know, it's easy to just say, well, it's good exposure for them. Sure. The money's not so good, but it's good exposure. Never considering the issue of, wait a second. I thought, I thought the whole concept of copyright was that the artist had the had the um, uh, ability to decide that for for him or herself to say, "Hey, I don't want my stuff used here. I don't care what you say about exposure. I don't. I don't want that. I want to sell my stuff, and here's the price I want to. I want to set for it. And if that's zero, that's fine. That's their right. But the idea that it ought to be a a, a right, and to me, it gets lost, Michelle, in this conversation. This idea of, um, you know. The idea of saying corporations instead of looking at at people and looking at you know I don't know I guess I guess I wouldn't say ideology but I guess the 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 concept for instance of artist rights 
for example, how that's being eroded, why it's being eroded. I guess that matters, but I'm more interested in, in speaking to individuals. I mean, I think that's how, I don't know. I think that's how things change. You know, it's people, it's regular people who go out and, and really make, make a change in things. Well, for the sake of the conversation, I can I can simply agree and say that what you're saying kind of concurs with my experience, or I can drill down just a little deeper. Go ahead. Um, when I signed to uh, Polygram in 1988, I had a very knee-jerk uh, perception of what it meant to be on a major label. And so I learned, you know, as a... Uh, a raw young ideologue that, as you say, a major label isn't this monolith. It's the people that work in the major label, of which some were good, some really cared deeply about art and culture and the artists, and some were really bad. Some were greedy and looking after their expense accounts and um, abusing their power and manipulating um, people's realities. Um, so and, like every other job in the country, basically, or every other workplace in the country, really. Yeah, on, on that level. But where I would kind of quibble with you is that we are in a time when the Supreme Court has basically ruled that corporations are people. And... Um, that's where I would, you know, kind of start to split hairs with you. But I'll give you another example. We recently took on in the artist rights uh, fight, uh, NPR signed on to what was called the Mike Coalition. That's right, yeah. And, you know, the Mike Coalition was all of the media, corporate media, usual suspects. And it didn't make sense why a public radio a platform would log on with Clear Channel, <laughs> the National uh, Broad Association of Broadcasters and stuff like that. And we were able to appeal to the people inside of NPR. And lo exactly. and behold, we discovered one guy up at the top, an investor, an investor in the, um, in the corporate uh, infrastructure was going to profit from this at the expense of the entire legacy that now NPR was being challenged by the artists that had helped to create and build its uh, uh, demographic base. But, and, but, and ultimately, though, correct me if I'm wrong, but NPR pulled out of that, right? They did. They did the right thing. And not often do you get to have that... Um, you know, experience, but it was, it was a real victory for artists coming together, using their voices and not being knee jerk, not just, you know, painting NPR or even for that matter, Amazon backed out. Um, because sometimes the people within these infrastructures can, can have an influence. Yeah, but uh, I, absolutely. And I think that's the way you know, to my mind, that's the way to, to deal with it is to appeal to people. And to, I just think to me, it's, it's almost more a matter of semantics than anything else, because I think the problem is when you say, and I've been seeing this, you know, obviously since I was a teenager in, in punk rock, very leftist, uh, uh, culture and ideology, it's real easy to 
um, sometimes to look at the world and say, okay, it's the, it's the fault of the government, it's the fault of corporations. And I'm not equating that with the Citizens United thing. But, but the truth of the matter is, and always is, it's us. It's certainly the case with, with um, you know, the issues with streaming and with compulsory licenses and what's going on with, with uh, artist income now from recorded music and, and, uh, and, and the issues that come with that, artist rights, copyright. Uh, it's, it's, of course, there are corporations that have interests in that, certainly. But, um, but it shouldn't absolve the individual of responsibility. And when you say, like, I, what, what gets my goat isn't so much Amazon when they yet again start streaming on Prime my music, even though I did not sign the agreement they sent, and I don't want them to do it. And yet again, they do it, and then they pull it, and then they do it again. That kind of gets my goat. But what really gets my goat is, is the... Um, is the idea that so many people have that I should be quote unquote happy and grateful that I have any fans at all. And that, you know, this kind of mentality that's, that seeps in that used to be really on the fringes, even in punk rock and now has become mainstream. But this idea that, um, that you, you don't have really any rights that you don't have the right to decide what you will or won't do with your music. That comes from that. That's not coming. That might be capitalized on by corporations. In fact, I know it is. But that comes from us. That comes from all of us music fans, and that's what's dangerous to me. Ultimately, because if you be and the reason Michelle is because I think if you can if you can cut through that and you can relate to people, this is the reality of the situation for me, for a working musician, not a big rock star, not somebody who's famous. And you can connect to them on that level. That's far more powerful, I think, than anything Amazon or Google can do. I don't think either one of us believe, I don't think anybody believes that Amazon pulled out of that thing out of the goodness of their hearts because they did the right thing morally. Um, they did it because it was looking bad for them. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And unfortunately, that's that's how you affect change. But I don't think that's the way to go about it dealing with individuals. And I think that's where you get into that witchification thing. That's where you get into this thing of I'm going to publicly shame you. Um, and uh, uh, and that's not to me, that's not what this is about. To me, it's not um, it's not so much a moral issue. It's a it's an issue of addressing literal ignorance of people literally not knowing the reality of how things work and something that I think is pretty near and dear to your heart, the concept that on the one hand you want to say, uh, Oh, you should just be happy to have fans and look at all the exposure you're getting and blah, 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 blah. But ignoring completely the fact that somebody's making a mint off this. Somebody's making millions and millions and millions of dollars. Of, I would say of, of your dollars. Yeah, of, of the money that belongs to the artist, that the artist earned. And it's interesting how the same people who are fine with that are also the people who were telling us 10, 11 years ago, oh, no, file sharing is going to be good because it's going to eliminate these greedy major labels. And, and then, you know, then the artist will get all this money directly from fans and they'll sell more merchandise and they'll sell more tickets. And nothing of the sort has happened. Nothing of the sort has happened for pretty much anybody. Um, and now these people are singing the same tune. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, but they seem to be okay. Even the really politically aware far left people seem to be perfectly okay with these major corporations 
making the lion's share of the profit off of streaming, off of compulsory license, like uh, licenses like Pandora, they seem to be perfectly fine with it. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree, and it was kind of my job to help, to help them connect a few dots that um, they probably wish that I hadn't helped them connect. Uh, because, you know, there, I think you also touched on a fine point when you said that now that bootlegging uh, makes them the star of the show. That was uh, Owen, they, yes. They, they work themselves into the act that the, the one thing that they did not count on, and this was what I exploited to the hilt, was that they possibly cared about my career more than I did. And I'm not saying that I didn't care about my career, but there's something that I care about more than my career, and that is the truth, and that is the power of art to speak that truth. And I care about that more than I care about my career because, like, let's review, I learned early on that I have very, very little control over my career. Um, your first, I'm sorry to interrupt, but your first record, correct me if I'm wrong, was a bootleg. You, yeah. you did not, you did not, you, somebody recorded you and put out a record. You woke up one day and there was a record out. Yeah, it was So from the, from the very beginning, <laughs> that's how your music career started. <laughs> yeah, you talk about feeling like an a, a animal in a zoo. That, that was literally like being kidnapped in the jungles of wherever. <laughs> um, listen, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be too much of a, a contrarian in this debate. I feel like, Oh, please do. Please do. That's what's fun. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I simply looked at the thing. I don't know how my brain works. I don't know why it works this way, but there were, it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. And if I hadn't spent the previous 25 years kind of connecting all of these dots in this strange way, as I say, all I knew was, was that it would work. I just didn't know how well it would work. And when, when this thing blew up, um, most people assume that it blew up in my face, that, that it took my head off. But I knew that it's, you know, not only is lifelong, but these conversations, just because you are winning or score points, it doesn't mean that it's over. You know, this conversation is going to go on for quite a while. And I've been really encouraged to see more and more artists who used to lurk on the fringes of this, watching themselves turned into commodities as if they're helpless to do anything about it. Um, this is a long game. This is a really long game that this stealth party uh, set in motion. I remember even in the 80s when I was rolling with Rock Against, uh, rock against Racism, Rock Against sure. Reagan. Yeah, you know, Lyndon LaRouche and his minions would show up and we'd be like, Lyndon LaRouche. <laughs> we'd be like... You know, so to have it come, you know, forward 20, 30 years from now with um, Paul's, Paul and, uh, you know, both Ron and Rand and 
uh, the Koch brothers and all this stuff that's going on. It's like we've been we've been witnesses to this process to the point where now I'll tweet this other link that I have where Taco Bell has um, a dedicated in-house millennial team for uh, Snapchat. I'll retweet that because um, can you imagine? <laughs> but that's, but that's, I mean, do you think there's anything fundamentally different about that and about all this stuff, whether it's the political, um, the political angle or the marketing angle that the, um, the, the data mining, the targeting, all that, is it fundamentally different really from the eighties or from the sixties? or from the forties or from whenever somebody woke up one day and said, I've got something to sell to somebody. Cause I, I don't, I, I think there's, I don't think there is, I don't, I, the technology has changed, but I think it's, I think it's always been that way. I think it's a matter of degrees that if you look at what happened in the eighties with the savings and loan crisis and the meltdown there, and you compare that to the 2008 subprime crash, it, it, we're talking, um, you know, on a planetary scale or a, uh, on a, on a universal scale, it, it, it got a lot more serious very, very quickly. The meltdown was much greater and affected many more people. And I think that the way they've done it, starting with the data mining that you talked about, the direct mailing, all that stuff. But now, it literally is um, the machine is is running itself, um, and we're seeing this even now. I don't invest in the stock market. I'm about as anti-capitalist as they come. For someone who owns all of my masters and has my mortgage paid off, I should say, but um, th this is a machine that is now running itself and. I don't know if I'm taking this off on a tangent that you didn't really want to go down, but go, go do talk whatever about whatever you want. It's fine. There was in the eighties, there was still an alternative to wanting to be the brand, the fate, the, the young, fresh face for Taco Bell. Right. Now this kid, she did her photos for her high school senior pictures inside of Taco Bell, because guess what? That's yeah. Okay. That's their aspirations today. That's what you can hope for. You can be yeah. the face of Taco Bell if you're really good and really lucky. Well, I would still it, argue that most people, most kids don't, I don't think that's typical of most teenagers. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't really, you know, now, now that I think about it, I don't know a damn thing about teenagers. Oh, and you have teenagers. <laughs> I have one. <laughs> you have one teenager, but I don't think, I, I mean, uh, from, from what I see, like, I think that's one of those things that, that it, se it just seems like in every generation, you know, in the 80s, everybody was a Satanist. You know, there were allegedly all these uh, Satan cults all over the place. And, they had, and, and uh, you know, I hung out with the degenerates, the burnouts, as they were called back then. I never knew anybody who took any of that seriously. Like, anybody who actually practiced Satanism. I mean, it was just one of those, you know, and it's... <laughs> It's kind of like every every generation has their has their thing like that and and it's put out there as though maybe it's not typical but it's common or something and I don't know I mean there've always been kind of ditzy high school kids but I don't know I mean I I don't think I think a lot of it just go go you know kind of gets recycled 
from generation to generation. And, and it, you know, maybe I'm a pessimist, I don't know, but it, you know, to me, it kind of points to, um, the futility of, of, of trying to, you know, kind of make yourself, make yourself happy by your own power. It's, it's kind of, you know, to my mind, it's a, the, the solution to that is a spiritual one, not ultimately a political one, which is not to say that the politics don't matter, but, but ultimately I think it's a spiritual problem. And I think if you took all the, all the marketing out and, and everything else, you would still be left with a, with a, a human race that is broken and that is, um, desperate for an answer, but only the answer that they really want to hear. And that, and that, and that, and that continually puts itself. I don't know. I always want to look back. I want to look back at myself and, and, and other people in the situation and not look out and say, okay, I'm good. I'm holy. I'm, I'm morally righteous. It's the rest of the world that screwed up because I think that's how you lead to this situation where you find yourself, um, you find yourself judging people publicly, shaming people publicly, not, not only not interested in any of the context, like in your situation, not only not interested in the context, but not even having the pretense of, of being interested in the context, not even pretending that context matters. And, and, and what happens then if you do that, you go out and you say, um, you did a, I saw it on video. The context doesn't matter. This thing that you did is always and everywhere unacceptable. Um, I don't think anybody really believes that or very few people really believe that. But once you paint yourself into that corner, then you're, 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 um, you have, avowed yourself of, or you have, you have become a part of this ideology that is necessarily so strict and rigid that you can't help, but, um, but fail that test yourself eventually. But nobody ever thinks it's going to be turned around on them. Nobody ever thinks, Oh, maybe I'll end up in a, maybe one of my worst moments, if it's a legitimately a bad moment, or maybe just something taken out of context and twisted. Oh, that's never going to happen to me. Well, let me piggyback on that for a second. Cause for me, the reason why context is important, and this is Michelle, you brought this up earlier, is because context is where I think you have the best chance of finding the truth. And that's where it's interesting to me, and that's where it's important to me. But, you know, Michelle, I think, is looking at it on this really big level. And what I'm saying is, where, you know, I mean the truth. And what I'm saying is whether or not, like, we're never, society is never going to agree on all the particulars of that. And, and so whether or not that's entirely accurate or not, isn't really that relevant to me because the, the, ch the change has to come from the individual. And I don't, I, you know, the, to me, the question is what's the best way to reach the individual. Now, Michelle, you said, and this really, uh, struck a chord with me because I, I feel the exact same way. And I was in the very, in a very similar headspace of saying there were people who wanted to destroy my career and they didn't understand. They, they literally, just like you said, cared more about my career apparently than I did because they didn't understand what makes my career. And I always use that word in air quotes, um, my alleged career, I should say, but they didn't understand that the things that are valuable about that to me are not the things that they assume are valuable about, about that to me. Um, what is valuable? Yeah, it's the same thing that Michelle said. It's the idea that, that art, 
um, has a, has a, that's how you get, that's one of the ways anyway, that you get to truth. For me, if you're, if you're blessed with any kind of artistic talent, then that is how you can get to truth. But it's not a linear, um, it's not a political truth. It's not a linear truth. It's not always easy to understand. Sometimes people think you're being, uh, deliberately opaque or, um, or deliberately, uh, contrary. And sometimes you are, but, but it's, a it's one of those things that you can't really nail down. So it's a, it's a tough thing. It, it frustrates a lot of people. I mean, when Michelle was going through her, her, uh, thing of having shows canceled and she was doing press and doing interviews and stuff, there were, um, you used Michelle, the word confounded a lot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for <laughs> confounding you. And that, but, but it's interesting because that is the job of the artist. And when you came to Madison, you did an interview with WORT, a uh, community radio station here. And the woman's name was Leonie. Uh, Dolch? Dolch. Dolch. Yeah. yeah. Dolch or Dolch. Um, and there was a point, and I know you were grateful for the interview. You, you were very gracious. And so I don't, I don't mean to uh, attack this person. There was a point where she um, asked you publicly, live on the air, presumably, maybe it was recorded, but asked you to um, essentially, as I recall it, state that you were going to be more careful in the future. And then what follows <laughs> is, is the most deliciously awkward silence I think I've ever heard. Um, just a couple wrap up questions. Right. Um, do you get how and why people were upset by what you said? I do. And I'd like to respond to that. Okay. Please forgive me. Please forgive me for causing confusion. Please forgive me for causing hurt. Please hear the words that you've allowed me to express here today. And from this judge that my intention was not to cause that harm, was not to cause that hurt. I realize that words have power. But please know that identifying my words with those of uh, Fred Phelps is a misjudgment on your part. Please don't use judgment in a case where I've proven over 25 years with my actions as well as my words, that I'm passionate about liberation. I just happen to also love the big J. And I would ask you in return then, if if people's interpretation of, of, of your words from Yoshi's in San Francisco is wrong, I would ask you then to be more careful with your words. Um. <laughs> But, it, but it's interesting to me because I think that if you actually sat down and talked to Leonie or a lot of the people who were thinking the way she was thinking at the time and reacted the way they did to this situation, I think if you sat down and talked to them, most of them, if not all of them, would agree that in principle that, that self-censorship is not really a good thing for art. But I, but I also think if you push them, they say, well, you got to censor a little bit. You got to censor a little bit. And I'm, I'm completely against it. I'm completely against the idea that we should be careful. We are the last people in the world. Doctors should be careful when they're yeah. doing surgery. Okay. Yeah. Artists should not be careful. We're the ones who are not supposed to be careful. And sometimes we're going to do things that offend people 
you know, you hear it with comedians all the time. Well, you, there's certain things you can't joke about. And you've got, you know, uh, George Carlin said, you say, oh, you know, you can't joke about rape. And George Carlin said, you know, people say rape isn't funny. He says, I'll tell you what's funny. Uh, Elmer, F- what did he say? Porky Pig uh, raping Elmer Fudd. Was it Porky, Porky Pig? Yeah. He said, that's funny. And I got to admit, I laughed at that. So, um, and I don't think rape is funny, but, uh, but the idea is context. And that was his point with that. And he said it very, very plainly. And it seemed like there was a time when people understood those kinds of things. And I, I worry now that the people who historically, and, and Michelle, you and I are, are, and Owen are all roughly in the same age group. And so we grew up at a time when, when the left, the American left was for, free speech and against censorship unequivocally, even if that meant that, you know, people could say these really rotten things that we totally disagreed with. It was important that the state doesn't come in and censor them. And it was important that we don't, uh, that we answer speech with more speech, that we don't try and shout people down. And it, it disappoints me and perplexes me to no end that the left has since the eighties increasingly embraced that sort of censorship, not, not government censorship, but the sort of censorship that ultimately makes for bad art that says you need to self-censor. You need to watch yourself. You need to be careful. Well, that's back to our original, um, uh, rub, which is the, the internet that we, you know, I can split hairs with you about what we're calling the left, um, as opposed to what may be based on my premise, we can call the perceived left because I, I guarantee you a lot of those people um, who are espousing Liberty are not um, what has now been kind of wedged into the progressive camp uh, versus the libertarian camp. So we've got a split there, but I, I'm going to take the rabbit hole that you offered me a little earlier regarding okay. um, the the spiritual depths of this oh, yes. of this conversation. And um, in the interview that I did with Leone Dolch, and the only way that I was able to find, um, you know that you know reconciliation when you feel it. You you know it when you're in that presence of peace. And the hostility, the antagonism, the, um, the fear uh, starts to dissipate. And even if you were conflicted with someone, once that reconciliation starts to take place, you start to see what they were actually saying or trying to say and how it might be. And the thing people were so concerned about, in my case, this witchification was if because of my faith I had been indoctrinated and brainwashed and it was inconceivable to them how I could hold a position of love and still uh, have an unconditional faith in um, the Word of God and confess it from a fundamentalist uh, Christian's point of view because it had been demonized so um, so clearly, so effectively in this online uh, free-for-all that we're kind of just referring to as the Internet. 
you know, but I had the benefit of growing up with my uh, father being a, what I call a devout atheist. Yeah. <laughs> which is to say a Catholic damaged atheist who later in life after his best friend passed away, he kind of qualified. He says, I'm faith challenged. Yeah. And I, I thought that that was a, a, a huge act of grace on God's part to allow my father to see that, you know, you don't have to go into his house and be preached the gospel of Madeline Murray O'Hare or Robert Ingersoll that maybe, you know, in between atheist and agnostic, there might be another possibility, which is to say, I just haven't lived long enough to know all the answers. And we should really look for wisdom where we can find it. And I'd like to think I brought a little bit to uh, my stage <laughs> that night in San Francisco. Now, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't always make them drink. So they just yeah. didn't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, but the bottom line is this is what, this is what really um, actually quite literally scares me because I've spent a lot of this conversation – saying, no, no, Michelle, these kind of things are all, all uh, uh, you know, generational and there's really nothing new. But I think the, the, the thing that is new that scares the hell out of me is this, uh, um, this idea that uh, even in, and I believe this very firmly, even in the only two and a half years since this, this incident happened with you in San Francisco, in that two and a half years, I sincerely believe that if it happened today, and Frank Portman touched on this on our, on our last podcast, if that happened today, the reaction would be even worse. It seems to be getting worse, the, the judgmentalism and the intolerance and the public shaming and everything like that. And it scares me, and it doesn't scare me because I am worried personally about any effect that it's going to have on me. It scares me because I have kids, and I, I don't want them to have to negotiate any of their artistic uh, waters in a world like that. Um, but also because I just think it's, it's very, very bad for art in general. You know, we hear a lot about the, that this term chilling effects gets used, uh, overused really, but that is, that is chilling truly to me, this idea that, um, that we, that we have to be careful. Uh, and ultimately though, I think, um, you know, I, I look at that and I say, yeah, you can't, you can't make the horse drink the water, but what really did anything get accomplished? Did well, you, did it, did it work not just for you personally, but in terms of, and you know, to, to, to my mind, what I heard going on, part of what I heard going on was you saying, and I thought it was fairly obvious and I thought you had to be kind of deliberately, um, trying to miss the point was that was that you were saying you kind of have a foot in each of these worlds um yeah and, and that you understand and you're trying to explain saying hey these people on this side are scared yeah. and and I'm one of them by the way not yeah. not saying I necessarily identify with everything they believe but th these are my I actually know these people I'm not just theorizing but I I am with these people and they're scared and this idea like why on earth can't, why do we have to constantly, it seems like this heightened year by year, it gets worse, this heightened idea that we're all in our own camps and we can't talk to each other and we've got to demonize the people on the other side. And I'm not excluding myself from that. You know, I'm, I'm part of that mentality, but, um, but I don't understand why, 
we, we want that or why we think that's good or why we think it makes our world better. So in that sense, did you, did you accomplish what you set out to accomplish in the sense of, in the sense of at least bringing some attention to that, to that idea? God bless you, Ben Weasel. God bless you. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer the question back to you and Owen are going to get the last word for the reason that I don't have kids, okay? You've got young kids. Owen's got teenagers. But when you say that you're scared, I believe you. I have the luxury of, of living my life without the responsibility of young people. And so to that degree, it makes me kind of the crazy aunt. <laughs> and and here's, here's, I think we can kind of draw the conversation to close with this story because it leads back to Madison. But it started in San Francisco, of course, because for two years now, people have asked me one question. What happened? And from everything that we've talked about today, there is not ever going to be a simple answer. But there is uh, something worth knowing that will offer an insight. Uh, you know, as the scripture says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I was in Madison in 1984. I was on my way to New York, and I was hanging out on the campus. And as I walked onto the campus, I saw a group of people and on the ground, it was at the, you know, at the student union area, the plaza sure. there, there were coat hangers on the ground around this group of people. And as I walked closer, what I saw were a group of students protesting these older women. And these older women were, as you can probably anticipate as I got closer, I saw the same thing, abortion. They were protesting against abortion. Now, I had just come from Dallas, where I had been arrested at the Republican National Convention. This was in 84, right? Remember Reagan then? Of course. And I had been arrested the month earlier in San Francisco at the Democratic National Convention on this premise that I started with that no matter which party was elected, these corporate donors were going to be calling in favors. So now I'm in Madison and I see these older women and I'm identifying because I'm still, what, 24, 23 myself. Uh, now I'm 22. Um, and they're um, protesting. And I, I couldn't resist going up to one of them and asking what what is it about this issue, abortion, that makes you, you know, come out and, and protest on the streets? I'm like saying, that's my job, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm protesting the war, I'm protesting nuclear energy, I'm saving the whales, whatever. I'm like, these are my streets. What is it about abortion that makes you come out and protest and face these you know, these crowds that scorn you and throw coat hangers and all this stuff. And the woman said something that not only will I never forget, but changed my life. She said, because I believe abortion is murder. 
I makes didn't, sense to me. <laughs> ben, I'm going to be honest with you. As a young woman who had done more than my share of sleeping around with guys and not once, not one time, did a man take the responsibility to ask me about birth control. Right. And I was playing Russian roulette with my body every single month, worried that I was going to get pregnant. And then what? You know, these guys, these guys had the most correct political opinions in the world about anything you could name, but not once, not one single time did they take the responsibility concerning birth control. I did not at that time really believe that abortion was murder. My, my opinion at that time was that if I didn't have the freedom over my body, if the state had the freedom over my body, I was essentially chattel. I was essentially a slave. So yes, I very much at the time believed that I needed the freedom to make my own choices for my own body. But here was my point. I recognized in that woman's response that if she believes abortion is murder, I could find common ground with her. Yes. I believe war is murder. I believe that passionately. And I told her, well, the next time you see me out on the street protesting this war, that police action, this intervention, this drone strike, this, you come up and you ask me what it is, what it is that I'm protesting. And I'm going to tell you, it's because I believe war is murder. But then it went to the personal, because as a feminist, you know, that's the big claim. The personal is political. Right. So the reason that I am the crazy aunt without kids is because my next stop when I got to New York was to a hospital. And I had my tubes tied. And I was 22 years old. And the doctors doing the operation asked me, are you sure that you're never going to want to have kids? Now, I may have been a very stupid 22, but I was smart enough to say, of course I'm not sure. Mm. No, I don't know if I'll never want to have kids. But as long as I have control over my body, this is my choice. This is how I am going to make the personal, political, and put an end to the murder. And it's a bit self-aggrandizing to say that I made the ultimate sacrifice. I took away my right and my choice in one fell swoop when I had my tubes tied because for a guy, and I saw Black Flag do this song, Operation, Operation, yeah. Snip and Tie, Snip and yeah, Tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a 10-minute procedure, and guys yeah. can have it undone any time they want. For a woman, I had to go under anesthesia. I was in the hospital for the day, and it's practically irreversible. I can't undo it. And so I'm talking to someone with young kids who's afraid of the future, 
I'm talking to someone with teenagers who maybe want to grow up and be the face of Taco Bell. I, I'm the crazy <laughs> Aunt Mame who has the freedom to not only not care about my career as much as my peers, but to not care about my career as much as these kids who are being taught that being a corporate shill is all that really matters. And I'll never have kids of my own. But I treat my songs as my babies, and I make sure that I protect them as fiercely as any mama would. And I happen to have an issue with corporations stealing my babies and serving them up and, and, and preaching that the money that they're making from my babies are legitimate profits. They're not. They're trying to turn my children into slaves. And as long as, it's, as long as I'm alive, all I can say is not on my watch. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Well, you know what? I think, I think um, ending there is good because I think I understand a little bit better uh, now. I think I understand that a little bit better, where you're coming from. Cool. And I thank you for sharing that with us. Powerful. Thank you. And uh, for, for our, uh, we've talked a lot about all these different issues, but I hope that uh, our listeners who are not familiar with Michelle's stuff, we're going we're gonna to plug some into this episode. Uh, uh, Owen's going to um, plug some in. But Michelle is one of the, it's been a, actually, it took too long to do this podcast because I was going over all your stuff, going over your back catalog and, and um, was, you're such a great singer. I mean, that's the, the, a great songwriter and a great singer. And uh, um, I'm just really, really blown away by all the different things that you're doing on, the, on records and how n- one record is never, um, you know, just a continuation of or a copy of the last one. There's always something new that's going on. And, and there is a joy and a passion and a sense of... Um, a sense of even responsibility in a way, I guess that goes along with saying that the feeling like the, the songs are babies. Um, but there's a sense of responsibility, a sense that you're doing something that is your calling, that's your vocation. And, uh, and it's joyful. And I appreciate that because, uh, so much of what I hear in, in music is not joyful. It's just, uh, upset and obnoxious. So, uh, and self-involved. And so I appreciate that you're doing something that, that tries to reach out to people and that tries to actually have a, uh, to, to make and maintain a connection with people. And I think it's important. And I think that, uh, I think that when it comes down to it, you and I are very much on the same page, uh, in regards to that. And I, and I, uh, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. Nothing but respect for you, Ben Weasel. Thank you for the time and the patience that you put into preparing for this excellent interview, this conversation. Thank you to Owen for massaging it. Um, this goes back to our friend Jed Shipper, who I know will, will, um, will appreciate having his name dropped in this conversation, and <laughs> Todd as well, who I didn't get to meet, but I think Todd helped to connect some of these dots as well. That's right, and Todd I'm, at Recess Records. And I'm giddy that um, after meeting you in Santa Ana um, backstage, I was introduced to Richie Ramon. Yes. And a friendship is growing there as well. So 
Bless you for the circles of love that you gather around you, the queers, Mr. T. It was an awesome show in Santa Ana, sold-out show at the observatory. And being back in the old sweaty mosh pit, I loved it. I love you, Ben. And you were you were out there. You weren't in the VIP section. You were out there in the crowd. I was impressed. <laughs> it was awesome. Thank you for keeping on, keeping on, and not letting the turkeys get you down, man. <laughs> Thanks so much, Michelle. God bless you. Bye.